Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so pleased that you're joining today. Today we're going to learn about some really, really fascinating things. I see somebody asking, what's good? What's good? I hope this class with Hashem's help. So today we're going to talk about career opportunities. And... As a bit of a preface, I want to reiterate that we've already established that doing the work that is necessary to make a living is actually a moral imperative. It's a mitzvah to provide for your loved ones. It's considered sinful to thrust yourself upon the community, to expect to be able to pursue your own selfish spiritual desires, and everybody else should foot the bill. That's well, not really them you're saying. It's, it's God. God finds a way. It's God's business. That's not correct. Rabbeinu Bahaya explained to us, and really established, as a matter of fact, that it's an imperative. I call it moral imperative because, to me, and you'll forgive me, to me, if Torah says so, it's moral. Moral means something that comes from a higher calling. I understand that it's not the way the word morality is used in the Western sense. But from a Torah sense, whenever we have a duty to behave a certain way, that becomes a moral imperative. We have a duty to do everything it takes to make a living. Now the question is, if it's a moral imperative, Shouldn't the Torah be giving us some direction? That is to say, the Torah doesn't really leave things open for interpretation, contrary to what many people think. If the Torah tells you to do something, by and large, it gives us pretty specific instructions. Or at least, it gives us the system the working principles with which we can chart the course 
through the choppy seas. This is Rabbeinu Bechaya's self-imposed mandate. He's taken it upon himself to guide you and me and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of others who have looked to this remarkable book for direction over the last millennia, over the last thousand years. So Rabbeinu Bechaya's next step is to tell us about choosing a career. Yes, there is a Torah way of seeking out an occupation. And you may be very surprised to find out what it is. I'm glad you're joining today. I hope you'll stay for the long haul because this is indeed going to be fascinating. And although, to be sure, Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to be using verbiage, I mean, talking about careers and vocations out of a thousand years ago, I'm pretty sure you'll find the advice here as relevant as computer science. But join me. Let's embark on this little journey together. And you'll see. You let me know if when the class is over, if I'm being ridiculous, or if, yeah, his words are pretty timeless. So we begin now with the words, Umi shuhu mebne ad up. Sorry, one second. No, no. One page back. The Kavon. If you're following along in the Kiat edition, I would direct you to page 98 on the bottom. Under the title, Choosing an Occupation, colon, do what you love doing. Really? Well, let's, let's get going. The Kavon Shehizbar. And since it's become clear, I have no idea why they use the term demonstrated here. I don't think birur is a demonstration. To the best of my understanding, the word birur is connected to the idea of to clarify. Levarer is to clarify. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says it's already been clarified. And as such, it's, I guess, what you would call an established fact, a faith fact that there is a chiyuv ha-gilgul al hasibot. The word gilgul, as we learned, means the concept of causes. Causes, mechanisms, maybe uh, conventions or avenues. And the word gilgul, of course, means like a cycle, like something that turns. The wheels are turning here. We have a responsibility, he says, to follow through with the, the finding of the right venues, the right avenues, the right mechanisms or conventions, the right envelopes through which we should be able to find a living. So since this is the case, since we established this, that this is the, ca- the case with regard to human beings, Human beings, we talked about the fact that God sustains other forms of life without effort, without toil. But we have to strive to make our living. And we've already established that that's an imperative. Let's take a look at the Mepharshim. The Paslechem says, and I quote, Achar shehit barer bidvareno, after it's become clear, 
kind of reached the conclusion in our words, and Abinu Bahai refers to that which he wrote before he trouble shot and dealt with the faith conundrums of why the wealthy are sometimes wicked and why the poor are sometimes actually very righteous. So Rabbeinu Bechaya already established for us, says the Paslechem, Shemutol al Odom, that it is mandatory. It's something which is obligatory for people. Lehit galgel, sivot, to get the wheels moving and to find causes through which, conventions through which, lahavi tarpam v'tzorchem, to bring home the bacon. I didn't say that. You know what I mean. We have to find our daily bread. And it doesn't rain down from heaven. At least it hasn't in some 3,000 years. So because we need to figure this out, and because manna only happened nearly 33 centuries ago, we need to find the source of our livelihood. The truth is that these words are clarified by Rabbeinu Bahaya, but it's implicit in the words of our sages. I've quoted this before. I'm going to quote it again for you. There's a medrash halacha that accompanies the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Chumash Dvarim, Bamidbar and Dvarim. It's called the Sifri. And the Sifri on Deuteronomy 15, Parshas Re'e, subsection or verse 18, in the Sifri, it's the 158th entry. It is stated, and I quote, Uveirachacha Hashem Elokecha. God will bestow his blessing upon you. Say our sages, as is redacted in the Sifri, Yochoil Afilu Oimed Ubatel. You might have thought, God will bless you. You don't have to do anything. Have faith, have trust. God will bless you. It's not unreasonable if you believe that God is the master of the universe and I place my faith and trust in God and I spend my time serving God, He should provide for me. I mean, if this is real, if you believe in God, it shouldn't sound unreasonable. It sounds unreasonable because most people have difficulty believing in God or at least trusting in God. They believe in theory, but in practice, that's betochen, trust, it doesn't seem to be real to them. But assuming that somebody believes in the Torah, absolutely. God says he can provide. And of course he can. So it says, God will bless you. I'll take God's blessing. I don't want to do the hard work, the heavy lifting. Talmud Loimar says this is free. The verse comes and teaches. God will bless you after you do your part. We are, in essence, enjoying a partnership. Only in a typical partnership, both parties pull their own weight. Here, we go through the motions and God provides. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But from the words of our sages, it is clear that the blessing comes to you on account of or by virtue of the efforts that you make you do your part, Hashem, Almighty God, will do His. And that's what the Paschal is saying. He's saying this is what 
Rabbeinu Bechaya established and clarified for us. I find it very interesting that the commentary known as Tov Halavanon, he takes these words or this idea a step further. Chiyuv HaGilgul, the responsibility of making efforts, says the Tov Halavanon, is not simply the idea that you must do something. That's stated clearly in the Sifri. What Rabbeinu Bechaya augmented in this arena was, you must go know that this is from God. This is by dint of divine design. That a person should not proverbially eat his daily bread. Only with toil. By euphemism, sweat of his brow. Now, of course, the Tova Levonon was drawing on the biblical words that describe God's conversation with Adam, the very first human being after he and his wife, Eve, sinned terribly, eating the forbidden fruit after they were told explicitly not to. God says, from now on, things are going to be very, very different. No longer will you be in the Garden of Eden, enjoying life and serving Hashem. Now you have to engage in natural means. And natural means, he says, means And so we are told that this applies to the great believer as well as the non-believer. Everybody will have to work hard. Why does it have to be so? <laughs> we already dealt with that. Well, according to those reasons as to why it has to be so, why does the person who doesn't need it still need it? We dealt with that too. Those are all spoken about and covered in the previous episodes. So now, we're not only saying a person has to make an effort, a person has to toil. These words are very important because it will lead us in an interesting direction. Let me throw this out. Be it resolved that making a living has to be miserable. And as such... If you have a vocation or career that you really dislike, that must be what God wants you to choose. Then you can be really miserable. Then you can really toil. Then your bread can come home by the sweat of your brow. But hey, if you enjoy what you're doing, you're not really sweating. You're having a good time. God doesn't want you to be happy. By the way, I don't believe anything I just said. I'm throwing it out there. Because it is precisely this myth that Rabbeinu Bahaya will now summarily demolish. The things he's going to tell us are actually going to be quite surprising. Especially because many people who are involved in faith practices have this morbid idea that God delights in human sacrifice and suffering. It's not true. At least not from a Torah perspective, which we believe is the absolute truth. God doesn't hate you. God doesn't want to see you suffer. God doesn't want to torture you. But why does he make life so difficult? It's a good question. So that life should be most meaningful. Many of this has been spoken about in previous episodes. If you're joining for the first time, I strongly encourage you to go back and watch. I'm merely highlighting the 
shall we say, novelty of what we're about to learn today. I want to share with you a sentence from a letter that the Rebbe wrote in December of 1946. This is just after the war. So many of our people are still demoralized. So many of our people are still, are still reeling from the suffering inflicted upon us. And many people are confused as to what exactly God expects of us even. And the Rebbe is talking about the concept of working. He got a question from somebody. Is it enough to believe in God and pray? Or do you actually have to do something to make a living? So the Rebbe says, quote, Meine, here's the answer, colon, Poshut, it is overwhelmingly obvious. Asher Bechlal, that broadly speaking, Hare Milvad Habitochen, in addition to trust and reliance upon Hashem, we are also morally mandated. Torah necessitates us to make a vessel, an envelope, a convention through which we should be able to earn our sustenance. The Rebbe says, this isn't new. The Chol HaTanach, the entirety of the scripture, the Torah scripture, the Jewish scriptures, Torah and the Vim Ketsurim, the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the later scriptural writings, and Medroshe Razal, and the homilies, and the expounding upon these verses and the teachings of our sages, Meleim Mizeh, they are filled with this idea. It is abundantly obvious. The hahishtadlus and the effort. This is a key word, hishtadlut, the efforts. Because that which we try to do may not be blessed with success. But we do have to make the effort. So the efforts we make have to be lasses kli TV, that we have to make a nature, a natural envelope, a natural convention, there is absolutely no contradiction to the concept of relying on Hashem. Well, why not? If I'm trusting God to provide for me, why would I have to work hard and earn my sustenance? God's going to provide. Says the Rebbe, it's obviously not a contradiction. Because the very God that you are choosing to trust in told you, Get off your bum and go work. <laughs> How could that be a contradiction? How could it be a lack of faith when the very God that you have faith in instructs you to work? That's why I'm calling it a moral mandate. I'm calling it a mitzvah imperative. And God says, Shahu that he will bless him. He will bless whatever you do. You create the pipeline, God will activate it. And the Rebbe alludes to the Sifri. So it's very clear that of course we need to work. 
Well, if we need to work, we're obligated to work, it's a mitzvah, moral mandate, it's an imperative, shouldn't Torah be telling us how to find the right job? Or do we have to just keep trying to do everything, knock ourselves out, make ourselves as miserable as possible, because God says you have to do that, and then he'll choose which of these things should work. Rabbeinu Bachaya says that's not reasonable. It's not even fair. Nevoir ato. I will therefore now explain. Ki ein kol odom chayev lachzer al kol siba Not every person has to pursue every avenue possible in order to make a living. There may be various possibilities through which a person can find their sustenance and we are not required to press every button in front of us or make every effort to try everything and God will choose which of those should work. One might argue that that's the case. Rabbeinu Bachaya remonstrates it is not. Why not? Well, he says, first of all, because there are so many possibilities, it would be totally unreasonable to suggest that a person has to make every single effort and try to press every button in the hope that, hey, maybe this is the thing that God is choosing. But then again, why not? How do you know what, in fact, Hashem wants from you? How could you be so sure? It's a good question. Listen carefully as Rabbeinu Bechaya will use language of antiquity to speak to us in very modern terms. He says, first of all, you have You have certain possibilities or venues to make a living, so to speak, and these avenues are easy. They're not toil intense or work intense, very little physical exertion. For example, he says, and again, he's going to use examples of what people once perhaps might have done. Maybe they're not doing precisely that today. So the first thing is, he says, like running a little business, you know, a little store where you sell things. There are still people that run little stores. There are a lot of big department stores, a lot of big supermarkets. It's not the same. There are people who run little mom-and-pop shops. There still are stores like that. It's not necessarily labor-intensive. Or there can be meleches yod. There can be handiwork, or what you would call perhaps a handcraft. But it's a kind of handcraft that isn't something that's very, very labor-intensive. For example... And here's the handicrafts that are not labor-intensive, or the handiwork not labor-intensive. He says, Kitfira, like sewing. Ki'ichui, weaving. Interestingly, the Menoye Chalavovis, who's a, he's an Ashkenazi Jew living in the 17th century, he says that Tfira is what we call in German Yiddish, Schneider, you know, the proverbial Jewish tailor. All right. He says, it's the people who sew garments. Ichoi. He says, in German, it's called a niter. 
Does that mean a knitter or a weaver? I'm not sure. He seems to think, Menei Chalavavis, that the first is somebody who works with wool or cotton. The second is somebody who works with linen. What do I know? It actually doesn't make a difference. That's the interesting thing, because these are examples of what people might have done at one point. It's self-understood that we're not going to be hearing about computer science or a job in technology. But really, does that make a difference? Just find the equivalent. He says another possibility is sifrus. And this is an interesting word because our rabbis are divided over what Rabbeinu Bechaya actually means here. Some think that sifrus is a barber. Menechel says so. He says, yeah, that's havaras haser. That's taking off the hair, cutting hair. Maybe it's from a person. Maybe it's uh, cutting the hair off a garment. You know, like the fuzz. He says another possibility is that the author didn't mean, or the translator wasn't translating the idea of sapar, which is a barber, but rather sulfur, a scribe. Maybe a court stenographer, maybe somebody who actually writes documents. In those days, many people didn't write. They had to go to a professional to get something written up. Some maintain that the difference between the sewing and the weaving is somebody here is sewing clothes, and the other one is actually creating cloth, creating the textiles. Others maintain that it's a different form of sewing. One is a sewing that's so tight that it's virtually seamless. And that's Ichoi, the Paslechem, quoting the Gemara Mayed Cotton, says it seems that that would be an expert form of sewing in which things are practically woven together. And you don't, it, it's left in a seamless fashion, whereas the Tvira, ordinary sewing, you can see the seams. A number of the, the commentaries seem to believe that the Sifras is a barber. And then you have others, no, who are pretty sure that it's not, that it's a... <laughs> it's a according to the Teuvel he seems to be describing a court stenographer, a notary public, or maybe even a lawyer. Itzur hamischorim so Itzur HaMeshchorim translates as safeguarding merchandise. Does it mean to be a, a night watch person? Like what, what exactly does that mean to, to safeguard Itzur HaMeshchorim? So I, I think it means something like a trustee. Like a person who would be responsible for ensuring that the merchandise is properly stored in a warehouse until the price rises. You know, knowing, knowing when to put something on the market, when to hold it back. There's a certain acumen here. It's not about lifting the boxes or putting the merchandise somewhere, but rather it's knowing when to sell, when it's needed. There's a fair bit of strategy or brain power involved. And then there are those who 
hire the sharecroppers, the managers. They're not actually doing the work. They're hiring the workers, the payalim. And the shamashim ba'avedasa'adam, they're overseeing, supervising the job is being done on the field. All of these people have what we would call in English today, white-collar positions. Umehem. And then we have other means. Sibais yeshbahem yegia v'toyrach. There are things that require tremendous toil, tremendous physical exertion. It doesn't mention it here because once upon a time, people used to work hard, but maybe a personal trainer. Maybe a person who is involved in some kind of athletic activity. They work pretty hard. He's giving us examples of yesteryear. Ibud ha'iris, the people who are involved in tanning skins. Somebody who mines iron or copper from their origins. And that's deep in the ground, the miner. Ziko kakesef boiferes, the refining of silver by virtue of lead. Nesui hamasoi sakvedes, the heavy lifting, <laughs> what we call in Yiddish schlepping. Oh, you want modern terminology? The trucker, the warehouse manager, the person who's responsible for packing things. There are people who do these. Heavy lifting jobs. There still are jobs that require menial labor, construction. That's not easy. Road repairs. These people slave away. They toil really hard. Oh, and yes, there still are coal mines open. And they're still mining gold and silver. And no, it's not all robots. So somebody's got to do that work. And then there is there's the working of the land. There are still are farmers. We have lots of farm machines and tools, but there are still people manning those machines and tools. I guess this is what you would sum up and call in modern day terminology, blue collar labor. So whether you want to be part of it, there's the white collar labor force or there's the blue collar labor force. The receptionist doesn't do any heavy work but it could be a taxing job. The person who's involved in the legal profession or accounting isn't flexing his or her muscle, but it could be extremely draining. You think it's easy to be a therapist? A psychologist? A psychiatrist? He didn't even mention the medical profession. These are hard jobs. A teacher, an academic, a researcher, they're all different forms of white-collar labor. I once read somewhere that people who work in the airport, in the tower, the airport control, work under so much pressure that most of them have to retire in their mid-40s because you literally have thousands of lives riding on your decisions every day single hour of every single day. I mean, the pressure is unbelievable. You make a mistake in the radar, there's a plane, a tin can flying in the sky with 300 people. 
too scary to think about. I've seen pictures of doctors and nurses laying on the floor, collapsed after 30 hours of surgery. 30 hours of I can't even imagine that. The stamina that's required, the devotion, the commitment to work continuously, the 30 hours in a surgery. It's, it's, it's astounding, it's mind-boggling, it's draining. You don't really flex any muscles. So there are various types of work, and just because you aren't working hard physically doesn't mean you aren't going to be exhausted. There are different forms of exertion. What's a person required to do? Do I have to just keep trying every vocation that comes my way until Hashem blesses me with success? Or is there a strategy here? Like, are we supposed to look at career opportunities? And how do we figure out what choice to make? Rabbeinu Bachaya says it's actually pretty straightforward. He says, If you have a person who is physically very strong, but he isn't really strong or good at differentiation, recognizing the subtleties, managing things. That's not what he's good at. You take a person who is fit for brawn and you put him in a position that requires lots of brain, you're going to have a very unhappy individual. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're also going to have a failure because he isn't cut out for that kind of work. You take a person who is blessed with an extraordinary amount of brain power, know-how, talent, ability, and you put him in a situation where he has to toil and work hard, it can be extremely debilitating. He says, I'm not using the gifts God gave me. I'm not using my abilities at all. Rabbeinu Bechayah says, you take a look at what you're suited for and you choose a vocation that actually fits for you. The person who's got lots of brawn and not as much in the brain compartment or department should choose something that has toil. People enjoy that. They like to work hard. They put on a hard day's work. They feel accomplished at the end of the day. They've got stuff done. The bricklayer feels really good about himself and he looks back and he sees a brick wall that's all built up. It's cool. He has this schedule. He's at work at 5 a.m. or 4.30 in the morning and he ends at 3 o'clock, kicks back, enjoys a beer, has his nice time, and he goes to bed and gets up early in the morning and, and he's happy that way. You put him in a managerial position or a position where he has to be involved with and, and uh, something that requires intense mental and emotional exertion, you're going to have a demoralized individual. Where does Hashem say a person is supposed to be demoralized or broken? Nowhere. Really. A person is supposed to make effort. A person is supposed to expend a tremendous amount of strength in what he or she does. But doesn't say anything about misery. Rabbeinu Bechaya says simply, What can a person suffer or stand? What can he take? 
Mishu Cholosh Begufe, a person who's weak physically, Vakarosi Chazaka, but he's got a very, very sharp little mind there, and there are various kinds of brains that work in different ways. Brains that are more mathematical and work with sequence, brains that are more philosophical and work in creative fashion. Al Yevakesh Mesibes Hateref the Bina Bechaya says something really extraordinary. He says, what can you tolerate? Don't look for things that are going to literally exhaust you. What should you look for? You should look for something that works well with whatever wherewithal God's granted you. And this is something that you can see yourself doing for years to come. Just about anybody can do anything for a period of time. The question really one has to ask themselves when they're getting into a vocation or occupation is, do I see myself doing this for a long period of time? Or is it too taxing for me? Something that's going to overwhelm and destroy me? You know, because of a variety of things that I do, I know a bit more about policing than most people. And I want to tell you something that vast majority don't realize. Policing is an extremely taxing career or vocation because you go from a period of extraordinary vigilance to no vigilance at all. You're like really on where the slightest noise sets you off and you're always reaching for your firearm because you never know. And then you have two days off where you're not doing very much of anything. You know, just chilling, helping with the kids. And then you're back in the cauldron where you're being called to all kinds of uncertain situations and you don't know what awaits you. There are bad people out there with weapons and baleful intent. You're the front line of defense. This is extremely difficult. I once spoke to a fellow whose brother works for the Secret Service in Israel, the Shin Bet. And he told me that, he said, I'm not going to tell you who my brother is and nobody else knows what my brother does. But he said to me, it's an extremely difficult job he has because he's sent off overseas on missions, espionage missions, where he's super vigilant. And then he goes home to where he lives in the small farm, a small yeshuv, and he's not doing anything very special or dramatic at all. And he said, it plays with you. Incidentally, these kind of vocations oftentimes are things that people can't do for a very, very long amount of time because they're actually debilitating. Some people, they thrive in that adrenaline. They need a job like this. Other people just want to relax. They don't want adrenaline. They don't want surprises. They want to know what's coming their way. Different folks, different strokes. What can you see yourself doing for a length of time, for years, for decades? That's the kind of 
things you should be considering when you're looking at career opportunities. And here, I think Rabbeinu Bachai is going to say something which is really extraordinary. Really and truly extraordinary. And I'll tell you why soon. Let's first see what he says. Furthermore, until now, Rabbeinu Bachai has spoken about what you can do, what you're suited to do. If you win the lottery, you're not going to do it. But you're, you're doing it because you must. It's a choice of evils. This is what you can tolerate. And a person might think that, well, from a faith perspective, work is miserable. It's all bad. It's a, it's a means to an end, and it is only a necessary evil. And I wish I wouldn't have to. I shouldn't enjoy what I do. It's, it's merely a, a necessity in the present reality. People shouldn't get into, enjoy, have a passion for what they do. Hashem is providing the sustenance. You go through the motions and your passion should be only in Yiddishkeit. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, it's not actually so. He says, everybody has motivation. Certain things motivate them. Certain things, if you will, light your candle. Or, there's a schayda me built There's a merchandise that you enjoy dealing with. It resonates with you, more so than something else. And this is hakel la This is something that Hashem actually placed in our nature. And this is that He puts in our nature ava v'chiba, a love or attraction to certain things. So the Neder Barkadish says that chifetz comes from the word cheshek. Cheshek means an appetite, a desire. Kvaret bir. Now the Bakredish says, this is about nature, not nurture. Hit b'shas mo'ireches melode. At the time of his being born, we all have our own dispositions. You're genetically predisposed to this. You always wanted to do it. It came to you naturally. The Pas Lechem very interestingly says, God provides for every form of life the mechanism or wherewithal with which it can obtain its sustenance. Common sense dictates God had to give that to a person too. He had to give you something that interests you, something you enjoy doing. Why would God give us less than he gives animals? The animal has a predisposition. The animal has a pre, if you will, pre-programmed interest or attraction or kind of a gate that it follows. We should too. It's only logical that of the various vocations available, certain people will be drawn to one occupation, career or another. It has to be so. And he says, in fact, we actually see it. We see it in the animal kingdom. We'll talk about that much more in the next episode. But we see it within people too. 
The Toiv Halavonon has a little bit of an interesting take on this business of God implanting within each and every one of us a desire or an actual proclivity. This interest, naturally. You know, the kids who are taking apart their bicycles and the engines or motors, things they can find when they're like small children. Those are kids that are good with their hands. They like to do mechanical things. That's what comes naturally to them. Then there's the kids that are sitting and reading. They're bookworms. They're going to look for a different kind of vocation. And by the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The Toy Valavanan says it's much more than just a natural inclination. This is the sign of divine design of Hashem's providence. Hashem actually talks to us. Though not in a manner of speaking or listening, He indicates things to us. We have to be ready to hear, ready to notice. God makes everybody like something else. People are drawn towards different things. The Teva Levanen says, for a better understanding of this, take a look at the Gemara in Mesechet Sota. And there, so I looked at the Gemara in Mesechet Sota. I was really curious to see what we'd come up with. It, I have to tell you, it wasn't obvious. Interestingly, he doesn't tell you which part. He just says, look in the beginning of Mesecha Seita. So I think this is what he means. It's a Gemara on page 47, side A. It's, a, it's an Agadah kind of Gemara, not, a, not an analytical, technical Gemara. So the Gemara tells a story about Elisha, a number of stories, about a narrative about the prophet Elisha, the successor or prime disciple of Elijah, the Ohanavi. And the Gemara quotes a statement from people who said, come to our good city. But in this good city, the water was bad and the earth seemed to swallow its inhabitants. But they said it's a good place to live. <laughs> so the Gemara says, what are you talking about? Like, what's so good about it? the And everybody needs water hydration is the next basic staple of life after air, the Oretz Mishakelas, and you have a ground that, so to speak, doesn't seem to lend itself to prosperity. So um, what exactly is so good about this place? Omer Abichonen. says, Chein Mokoim Al Yeshvav. When you live somewhere, you just like the place call you call home. This, it, it beckons to you. It, it's, it's your home. And everybody likes to be home. You find a place and somehow this place resonates. For you, it's the most beautiful place. And the Gemara says something incredible. Amar Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan says, Shaloisha chinois hein. There are three things of grace, three things that have an attraction, a force of attraction. And obviously we're talking about a force of attraction that's coming from a higher place. 
And he says, these are the three things. Chein mokoin, the grace or attraction we find to a particular geography or place, al Yeshvav, for the dwellers, the citizens, the residents of that particular area. Chein isha al the attraction that a healthy marriage engenders, husband is drawn, finds his wife attractive. And finally, there's There's the attraction that a person has to something that he does business with, to the merchandise. So the Mepharshim explained, we live where we live by a divine dictate. It's a famous teaching from the Baal Shem Tev, people go to a particular place because... Because that's the way it is. Hashem ordained it that that's where you belong. This can be found in a number of different places in, in the Hayom Yom. Where we hear about Hashem draws a person to a certain place because that's where you have a mission. That's where Hashem places you. So, because a person is going to be drawn to a certain place, because a person has a mission in a certain place, because we belong in a certain place, there's going to be something drawing us there. It's divine design. We're going to find it an attractive place. It doesn't mean you're stuck wherever you were born or raised or live now. If you found, find yourself drawn elsewhere, then there's something pulling you in that direction. It'll come from a higher place. It's called a chain, a force of attraction something about it that has a magnetic pull. The Gemara tells us that before we're born, it's already ordained who is our bashert, who we should marry. And the Gemara says that weeks before our conception, there's a proverbial heavenly voice that calls out, the son of such and such parents will marry the daughter of such and such parents. That's how we look at marriage. It's a big deal. If you want to know of what marriage should not be seen or viewed as, look at Hollywood. Over there, they're called disposable marriages. Arrangements of, I don't even know what. Marriages are not meant to be dissolved. The fact that a marriage can be dissolved necessitates you working on maintaining the marriages. Marriages were meant to be maintained. You only have to maintain things you're in danger of losing. If it wasn't possible to get divorced, you would never work on your marriage. You'd take it for granted. That's why the Torah talks about divorce before it talks about marriage. Not because marriages are meant to be broken. Unless there's, God forbid, abuse. We never encourage people to get divorced. Try to find a way to work it out. It's divine design. Hashem put you together. Now, there are beautiful women, and there are women who aren't beautiful. It's a matter of fact. Not only a Torah fact in the Gemara, but it's a, it's a matter of fact that men are attracted to physical beauty far more so than women are attracted to male physical beauty, or physical or handsome. There's, there's a, years ago I read a study that indicated that the vast majority of men are attracted to physical beauty, whereas the vast majority of women are attracted to intelligence. 
It's a different, it's not, it's a different force, force of attraction. This is a ridiculous joke. <laughs> You'll forgive me. So the man said, the man said, God, why did you make my wife so beautiful? And God said, so you would marry her. And then the man said, why did you make her so stupid? And God said, so she would marry you. It's a joke, maybe a bad joke. There's a, there's a point, though. Every joke has a point. They say every joke has a little bit of truth. There's an element in which a person is going to find themselves attracted to something. But if there's no physical beauty, how does that work? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, says the Gemara. Hashem makes her beautiful in her husband's eyes. He's attracted to her. He should be. So it's a chain that Hashem implants. Why does God implant that? Because this is something that's supposed to happen. So God makes Shalish Chena saying, Chena Ishalabayla. Hi, other people don't find her attractive. Who cares? We're supposed to marry one person. There's one man who finds her attractive. And that's the one she's supposed to marry. And he's supposed to marry her. Incidentally, when couples date, if there's no attraction whatsoever, it's not a good idea to go through and continue dating. It's got to be some kind of attraction. It's almost like a sign. No attraction at all, something's not right. The Gemara says it clearly. What's the last chain? Merchandise? <laughs> like, really? What does that mean? What does it mean? Mecca chalmikhei. A person bought something, it was a lousy, it was a lousy deal, and, and it looks fantastic to him. What, do you never hear of buyer's remorse? Do people never make foolish decisions and not convince themselves that that which they bought is beautiful? Perhaps the Gemara isn't talking about a particular sale, but it's talking about a certain kind of merchandise. The Gemara is telling us that there's a force of attraction. Some people are attracted to a particular vocation. In other words, in the same way that Hashem ordains that we should live in a certain place, in the same way Hashem ordains that we should marry a certain person, in the same way Hashem ordains that we should have a certain vocation. Think about that. It's a very powerful statement. What you'll do to make a living is ordained. But how will you know? Ah, the Teiv HaLavonin says, you'll know because there's a simon, a there's a sign. There's a beautiful teaching from the Baal Shem Tev on the words, Nafsham Bahem Tis Atof. He speaks about a person who is looking for material, Re'evim Gam material satisfaction. You know, he's thirsty. He's hungry. A person needs to be hydrated. A person needs to be satiated and fed. In King David, David Melch uses the words nafsham behem tisatov. Their soul is thirsting, is craving, is hungry. The soul isn't hungry. The soul doesn't need a drink. The body is. It's a biological thing. Why mix the soul into this? The Bachshantov said, that's a very myopic perspective of reality. If we only look at the biological or material reality. We need to understand that the spiritual realm, existentially the soul, and the material realm, existentially the body, are not inherently or intrinsically disparate. They were fused together. What happens is 
that a person's body craves and yearns and thirsts and hungers because there is something spiritual to be found in sustenance. And this is as per the teaching of the Arizal on the Pasuk and Parshas Ekev that says, A person does not live merely by virtue of the bread, the carbohydrates that he or she consumes and digests. A person lives with the energy, with the power that issues forth from the mouth of God. The Arizal explains that there is an element of spirituality, a spiritual life force. He calls it a spark that's embedded into every detail, every nuance in the strata of existence. And when, when you, we utilize this, anything material, anything actual, for a holy and a sacred purpose, we in effect harness it and release those sparks so they can be returned to sender. That's, by the way, <laughs> the meaning of tikkun olam rectifying, perfecting the world that God made it, is harnessing everything for its designated purpose. And it's not just a physical thing. So in the same way that a person might have a physical hunger, and we interpret that or view it as not only a physical hunger, a physical hunger because the person has the hunger to elevate, the soul hungers to elevate the material and the physical. That's why there is a symptom that expresses itself in a biological or bodily fashion with his actual hunger. In the same fashion, we seem to be understanding that when you are attracted by a particular vocation, I'm not talking about making money for free, so to speak, or criminal activity, God forbid, that some people are attracted to, also attracted to alien forms of, 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 of libido and sensual pleasure, which the Torah says are forbidden. That doesn't make it so, oh, I'm attracted to it, it must be a good thing. Not so. Our attraction to something, when it's kosher, is because we're attracted to elevating it. Our attraction to something which is unkosher is so that we will push away and exhibit the self-control. Incidentally, this is called asetov and surmeira. King David says it in Tilim in 34th Psalm. He says, surmeira, stay away from the bad stuff, asetov. So from all the people you're going to date, you're going to marry one. And that's who you should stay with. And you have to date different people to find that one. And that's fine. As long as you're still dating. Once you found the one, you shouldn't be seeing or looking anywhere else. That's inappropriate. That's not kosher. So there are fatal attractions, bad attractions, unhealthy attractions, debilitating attractions, destructive attractions. And then there are good attractions. How do you know the difference? For this we have something called the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. If you're attracted to a man or woman who the Torah says you shouldn't be marrying, that's a fatal or bad attraction. If you're attracted towards somebody who the Torah says you can and may marry, hey, maybe something's happening here. Maybe, just maybe, Hashem ordained it that you should meet and be attracted. It didn't just happen. That's how we view the idea of making a living as well. In other words, 
vocations and careers, occupations, are not simply whatever it is. The main thing is the blessing comes from God. That's true. You have to do something. Just do something. Whatever. It doesn't matter if you hate it. It doesn't matter. Wrong, says Rabbeinu Bechaya. Hashem ordained for you to do something specific. And the way you're going to find it is what you're suited for and what you're attracted to. So choosing the right career for yourself is not a denial of betachen, of trust, or the knowledge and faith that Hashem is the one who provides. Not at all, in fact. Because guess what? God doesn't want you to be miserable. God wants you and I to be happy and fulfilled. He loves us, and God is good. We pray for overt goodness, goodness we can see, goodness we can taste, goodness we can feel. But things that happen to us happen to us for our good. There's no virtue in suffering for the sake of suffering, being miserable for the sake of being miserable. If a vocation makes you miserable, it's probably not for you. Because God didn't ordain that you suffer or be miserable. Not from a Jewish perspective. In that very same letter, the Rebbe sums it up this way. He says, on one hand, quote, hakli v'hasiba, the vessel, the convention, the envelope, the, the cause. You have to do it because God commanded us to do it. If he wouldn't command that we work, maybe we wouldn't have to. But he did. And is therefore a moral imperative. If you think that that's what makes the difference, or mazik, that's what harms you. That the business... The vocation, the occupation, the career you chose, that's what's going to give you the sustenance or affluence you're looking for? Make a big mistake, he says. That's poigim, the midah Now you're actually assaulting, damaging the dimension of trust that you were meant to have in Hashem. And here the Rebbe gives us a stunning perspective. Just a few words. A person was commanded by God to do that which is in hand, that which you can. God doesn't make impossible demands. In the words of our sages, God doesn't make impossible demands of his creatures. Therefore, if you can't make a vessel, then the Torah clearly exempts you. It doesn't weaken your faith or trust in Hashem in any way. Let's think about that. How do you know the will of God? Well, you take a look at what's going on. If a particular vocation is impossible for you to get into, then that wasn't ordained or meant for you. Hashem has something else in mind. How would you know? Sometimes we're fortunate and we have these stunning views of Ashgacha Pratis, amazing things that come our way. Sometimes not. So then, we have to live with the faith 
and the security and surety that Hashem will ordain things for us. And if you're attracted towards something and it's kosher, that's probably a sign from heaven. There's a very interesting pasuk, which is found in, in, in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes. And the pasuk is found in the third chapter, the 11th verse. It's a very interesting verse. It's very interesting because it's a verse that on the surface wouldn't, wouldn't seem to be addressing our issue at all, but I'll share with you the words of the Gemara, and you, you'll see what the Mepharshim say. The verses in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes that deals with the order of the world, everything has an order. Everything is precise, the right time, the right place, the right force of attraction. Everything has a natural flow, an ebb and flow. Shlomo HaMelech in his wisdom says, Es hakoil osa yofe be'itoi. God made everything beautiful in its time. Gam es ha'olam nasan belibam. He also put the world in their hearts. In other words, for us to think about what's going on around us. To see the world in a very personal way. What does it mean for me? But all of this, notwithstanding, is that a person will not discover or understand the significance and the bigger picture of what Hashem has accomplished. So we can't possibly wrap our heads around the global phenomenon in its entirety, but we can take the global phenomenon and see it in our own personal way as it speaks to us. It's interesting that this idea, ha'olam nasam balibo, according to some of the commentaries, the word helam means concealment or that which is, if you will, missing, disappeared. And some maintain as such that God arranged it that we should forget certain things or certain things should disappear from our radar. You know, we naturally... Forget the pain we suffered. That's why the good old days are so good. Because <laughs> we naturally whited out or blacked out all the things we didn't really like and only remember the nice things. So our memories are less painful. On a mystical perspective, as ha'olam nasam beliba means the helam, the concealment, God's concealing his presence, what we call in Kabbalistic jargon the tzimtzum, the concealment or diminishment of God's light. That's for us. That was for us so that we could choose to live the kind of life that Hashem has ordained for us. Interestingly, this idea, God makes everything beautiful in its right time, in its right time. So the Mitzudah's David says, everything that Hashem did in his world, it's all beautiful. And but everything has its time. Everything's beautiful in the right time. So there's a right time for things. There's an emphasis here on time. How do they say? There's a time and place for everything. Well, the word olam means space. But the truth is that the word olam could also mean eternity. Again, an emphasis on time. 
The Ibn Ezra puts it that way. He says, the word olam means zman, netzach. It means eternity, like le'olam, forever. Eloke olam doesn't mean the God of the world. It means eternal God. The Sephorno goes further. And he says, it refers to parnasa. He says, You know, sometimes people are trying to make a deal and it just doesn't go. And then it, it's magic. It's so beautiful. It all works when Hashem wanted it to. You do your part. Remember, when God makes it beautiful, that's when you'll find success. The Gemara in Masechus Bracha says, what is the meaning of what's written? Everything was made beautiful in its time. Malamed says the Gemara in Brachas, Sandaf, Mem, Gimel, side two, page 43, side B. If God arranges your vocation, your career, your occupation before you. Everything happens in its right time for you. Hashem arranges it for you. Now, we can't wait for God to knock on the door or send us an email. You can't expect to find the Malach flapping his wings at you. So how do you know? The simple answer is, we follow the code of Jewish law. The Mishnah says, we have a spiritual mentor, a person who's going to guide us. And yes, we look at where we feel drawn to. This is all part of Hashgacha El Yoyna. It's all part of divine design. If God gave you a particular talent, well, by golly, use the gift you have. <laughs> Artistic ability was something that people in the old country used to fear terribly. We have artistic ability in our family. My, my father paints and draws, and his grandfather or great-grandfather had the ability to draw and to paint or to sculpt. I think there was a great-grandfather who used to carve lions for the Oran Kodesh, and my grandfather would tell me about his father drawing little pictures of lions for the Simchas Torah flags he made them. My father's really an accomplished artist. I'm, I, gotta, I have a confusion. I'm color-challenged, so... I gave up painting, but I could do some charcoal. And my father told me that when he was a boy, my grandfather was terrified of his artistic ability. Why? <laughs> because at the turn of the last century, there were some very famous Hasidim who had this artistic talent and ended up leaving Yiddishkeit because of it. You probably heard of Mark Chagall. Yeah, his, he was born as a Lubavitcher boy, a chassid. <laughs> he had a really good friend. His name was Hendel. And Hendel went the way of Mark, but after the war he came home and he became a very, very ardent, passionate chassid. He was a Hasidic painter, first Hasidic painter. But he took a bit of a left turn in his youth. So my grandfather was very much afraid of art. And in general, the arts were something that observant Jews were afraid of. 
But the Rebbe encouraged people to use their talent. If Hashem gave you a talent, you don't waste it. Because there's nothing in the world that's intrinsically bad. Everything simply has to be harnessed. If you have ability, use it. If you're drawn to a certain vocation, that's a sign. We don't have to be miserable. Hashem wants us to be happy. Hashem didn't challenge us to vex us and make us upset. He wanted us to work hard. We discussed that a couple of episodes ago. So work hard doesn't mean you can't enjoy or delight in what you're doing. And that, my dear friends, is how Rabbeinu Bechaya advises you from centuries ago. Speaking to you from a millennia ago, using verbiage which perhaps is better suited to a different time, speaks to you today. I once saw an amazing statistic. It went something like this. The majority of people would rather have a job that gives them satisfaction and less money than a job that gives them less satisfaction but more money. In other words, what people are really looking for in life is to be satisfied. It's true that the efforts we make are only a vessel, a keli, a convention for Hashem to be able to send us His blessing. But at the same time, it's not a sin to do something that you find satisfaction in. And quite on the contrary. If a person finds joy in what he does, if a person is able to find a vocation or a career that lends itself to their personality, then they'll be in a better frame of mind, heart, just happier. And guess what? Happy people are more effective in everything. Most of all, Avodah Hashem Yisbarach. The last of the 12 Torah passages that the Rebbe chose for children to memorize and all of us to live by are Yismach Yisrael Ba'esav. We should be happy. We should rejoice in the opportunity that we have to serve Hashem. Kol It means that everybody, every one of us, our real joy, our real happiness, our real passion should be found in the joy of Hashem. Who delights in our making this world a godly place. We make this world a godly place by studying Torah. We make this world a godly place by performing mitzvot. We make this world a godly place by engaging in it in a kosher and appropriate fashion, filled with faith, buoyed with betochen, filled really with a sense of trust in Hashem, and yeah, being happily disposed. Because we know that even something like making a living becomes an act of holiness when it's done for the right purpose. As long as we don't think that it itself is the source of our blessings. Thanks for joining today. We'll continue to develop this concept or these concepts and how we can be best adjusted and utilize the life that Hashem has given us in the fullest sense 
Bezrat Hashem, in the days ahead, in our future episodes. If you liked or found this class uplifting, inspirational, or even enjoyable, yes, you're allowed to enjoy Torah study, please be so kind as to like and to share. And again, if you haven't yet, please do me a favor and subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. God bless you. Have a beautiful day. And I look forward to seeing you back tomorrow. Take care.